You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with Michael Brady and Alex Shandrowski to learn all about 1031 exchanges and how you can use them in your real estate investing. Michael is the executive vice president at Madison 1031 Exchange, has 25 years of experience as a real estate and business attorney, and has personally helped investors defer over a billion dollars in capital gains. Alex Shandrowski is a Silicon Valley startup founder and strategic advisor turned 1031 exchange expert. While a lot of people listening to the show are newer investors and likely don't need to worry about 1031 exchanges right now, this information is very important to learn before you need it so you can prepare yourself appropriately as you grow your real estate portfolio. So without further delay, let's jump into today's episode with Michael Brady and Alex Shandrovsky. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Michael Brady and Alex Shandrovsky. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks a lot for having us. It's a pleasure. We were talking about this briefly before the show, but this is actually the first episode that we're going to have with two guests on. So I'm excited to, to get into this with you guys. And I think today's conversation is going to be especially interesting because I am truly learning with the audience today and nearly from scratch. That's not to say that I don't learn from all the guests that we have on the show because I do. But our topic today is one that I don't know much about. I've heard a little bit about it, but I've actually never done it myself. So needless to say, it's going to be a great learning opportunity for both the audience and me. Before we dive into the topic of today's episode, which is going to be 1031 exchanges, please both introduce yourselves to the audience so they know whose voice is whose, since they can't see you like I can. And also, please tell us a bit about your background and how you got to where you are today. Yeah. So uh, this is Mike Brady, Executive Vice President for Managing. We're a qualified intermediary for 1031 exchanges. I am actually an attorney by background starting out doing real estate and corporate transactions predominantly and started working in the qualified intermediary industry in 2005 when I ran the East Coast division for a large uh, publicly traded company. Since then, I joined Madison and I oversee sales and marketing efforts for our 1031 exchange division and I help structure some of the more complex transactions as well. Uh, my name is Alex Shandrovsky. My background is I'm, I was a small business owner in Silicon Valley. I ran a large catering company and serviced Google, Facebook, among others. And eventually, I sold the company. And uh, while I was in small business, I learned about real estate and the value of that being a great investment. So it was a wonderful opportunity to be able to join Mass and 1031 to be involved in the real estate world and to help people build multi-generational wealth. So it's a, it's a real pleasure and honor, Robert, to be able to experience two things for the first time, right? We're going to learn about 1031s and for you to feel outnumbered. So it's great. It's going to be a fun episode. Let's start right from the beginning of exactly what is a 1031 exchange. So when you have an investor, any type of rental or commercial property, when they sell it, they have to pay capital gains tax on their profit. So if you make you know a million dollar profit, right? We'd all hope to do that at some point in our lives. If you had a million dollar profit, you would pay taxes to the federal and state governments. And if you're in a, in a city like New York, you'd pay the city taxes as well. That could take up to a third of your profit. So if you made a million dollars, you could probably you'd probably wind up with about seven hundred thousand dollars to put in your pocket. 
Now, you could defer those taxes by rolling the proceeds into another property, another commercial or rental property. And the section that you can do that under the Internal Revenue Code is Section 1031. So that's why they call them 1031 exchanges. That allows an investor to swap one property for the other and defer their taxes by doing. That's really it in a nutshell. What I think is important to point out there is that you're saying defer taxes. It's not to eliminate or avoid or get rid of taxes. You're still going to have to ultimately pay those taxes at some point, which I think we'll get into in the conversation. But it's a deferral strategy that allows you to continue to grow your wealth tax-free for a period of time until you ultimately have to pay that tax bill. So a lot of our audience that's listening today is new investors or they have just a small portfolio. So why should someone at the very early stages of investing start learning about 1031 exchanges now? Well, one of the things that comes up in 1031 exchanges in particular is the structure by which you hold title to your property. So an early investor, first of all, should be thinking ahead if they're, especially I think many of your your listeners, their goal probably is to continue to grow their wealth. So they will probably be cycling through properties. They may have a small rental property now, but at some point they may want to buy a bigger property and roll the proceeds in. So that that you know, with 1031 is built for that, and that's great for your your investors that have those types of properties. But if you structure your entity with a partner, when you ultimately sell the property, if you do not decide to go down the garden path together to the next property, it can be difficult to kind of separate. So that's why. You may want to do some planning now when you are actually buying your properties to make it easier to get out and sell them at the end. So when would an investor exactly want to do a 1031 exchange? So what's important to know is that 1031 exchanges, again, it's about deferring gains, right? So one of the first things that you need to realize is you have to make sure that you're aware that you've actually had a gain on the property. So there are certain, certain situations when individuals come to us and they will look to do a 1031 exchange and we'll discourage them because, again, they haven't actually had the capital gains that they need to defer. And that's one thing that's really, really important to understand is, uh, are you actually, have you had a profit? Is this the right time for you to defer that, those taxes? That's one thing that's uh, really important to understand is make sure that you have a gain in the first place. The second thing is to understand is, is an individual who's looking for a long-term investment, long-term investment strategy that they have potentially they're locked into a market. Right? right now, there's a lot of laws that are affecting certain markets. Right? For example, some markets might be rent control markets. Some are, you see individuals who are moving to other areas that are potentially more beneficial. There's an opportunity to be able to move from a single home to a multifamily unit. So a good example for that is I come from Silicon Valley. So there's certain individuals who no longer want to be in managing properties in Silicon Valley, willing to, they want to move somewhere else, maybe potentially like a state like Florida, which has no state tax. So they're going to sell a property. They're going to have their, that's appreciated very strongly, especially hopefully Tesla will only grow. So, <laughs> so more, more of those homes in those areas are going to more, become more expensive. And uh, the idea is they're going to say, look, it's time for me to move to a different state where I want to still be actively involved in real estate, but I want to diversify my risk across maybe several properties in a, in a given state or multiple states. So that's another good reason to do a 1031 exchange for those investors who are looking to move out to better, potentially more profitable areas where they can have a great return on their investment. Mike, anything you want to suggest? Because that's a great question. 
I would just add, you know, really, if anybody is selling property at a profit, so you have a property and the market's been very strong in many portions or most portions of the country, I believe. Uh, if you're selling the property and you're going to buy something anyway, then it makes all the sense in the world to do a 1031 exchange. What I would not recommend, though, don't let the tax tail wag the dog. So you don't want to do an exchange and buy garbage property just for the tax savings because you could lose a lot more by buying a bad property and taxes. It's always important to make sure you you do your homework and whatever you're buying to replace what you're selling, you want to make sure that makes financial sense and it's going to be a good crop. Awesome. And you both mentioned that you obviously want to make sure you have a profit if you're going to be doing a 1031 exchange. So I guess my next logical question was, is there a threshold where it makes it worthwhile to do a 1031 exchange, right? Because if you're doing if you're selling your property and you only have a, a very small gain, is it worth it to even go through all of the work of doing a 1031 exchange to buy another property? Or is it sometimes better to just not worry about all that and just sell the property? I would say you don't have a significant gain. It probably does not make sense. Like I wouldn't do this for a $20,000 gain. You know, I wouldn't do this for a $30,000 gain necessarily. It might save some money, but you're not going to save a tremendous amount of money. Once you get to about $100,000 of gain, now you're talking about a $30,000 tax bill, as much as $30,000. And then it starts to make sense because the fees are relatively nominal. You can do a forward exchange for as little as the range typically is between $850 and $1,500. Okay. And if you're going to spend that money and you can save 30, I think it's a, a good investment. It makes sense to do it. Just as a side point as well, certain individuals in cases for tax planning would leverage a 1031 exchange in order to, to go into the next tax year as well. Because again, since you did not have receipt of that property, you did not have the gains show up in, in your bank account in terms of cash, not going to be taxed. So certain individuals say in, in November, they realize, look, I'm gonna, I want to sell this property now is the right time, but I don't want to be showing this capital gains and have to pay taxes on that year. So they'll use a 1031 exchange in rare cases to be able to put to sell the property, use a 1031, push them to the next tax year and uh, the tax planning strategy. But that's quite rare. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that is when people are doing that, they have to actually have a bona fide intent of completing the exchange in order for that to actually work. So you know, you wouldn't do it just as a, oh, I'm just going to push my taxes off the road a year. You know, you'd have to demonstrate if you got audited that you were actually looking at property and actually trying to complete the exchange. So it is something that it's kind of a trick, a useful tool for a failed exchange that straddles two tax years. And so what role does depreciation play in a 1031 exchange? I know there's been a lot of talk and I've heard a lot of things about depreciation recapture when you go to sell a property. So what role does that play in a 1031 exchange? And for those who don't know, what exactly is depreciation recapture? Let's start by talking about what depreciation is. One of the benefits of owning real property as an investment is that you get to take an income tax deduction each year to the extent of a portion of the value of your investment in property. So residential property, you have a 27 and a half year depreciation schedule and 39 years for commercial property. And so you're taking a tax deduction for 139th of the value of your commercial property every year. And as cost segregation studies may you know, accelerate that depreciation, that's a whole nother topic. So that's the good thing. So that's going to offset your rental income. And so you may actually have losses or very minimal income because of depreciation. Now, Downside of that is when you sell a property, you have to pay that back. You had those tax savings for all those years, but now you have the depreciation recapture, and that's taxed at a higher rate than traditional capital gains tax. 
the real estate portion of your recapture is typically taxed at a rate of about 25% as opposed to 15 or 20% for federal and long-term capital gains taxes. So that's the downside of depreciation. And so 1031 exchanges will allow you to defer the depreciation recapture as well by doing a 1031 exchange. So you're not just deferring your capital gain, but also that depreciation recapture. I will just add one caveat right now. You're, you're seeing certain investors leverage a tool that's called uh, bonus depreciation as well, which is uh, essentially accelerated depreciation, which is a great tool to offset, uh, uh, not, ca- even, not even capital gains tax, but actually income tax. Right? So it's a great tool. We highly recommend it. We actually have a cost sec team that specializes just in this area. But there is, a, there is a, a higher rate of recapture that happens in the bonus depreciation as well. But again, that would be deferred through a 1031 exchange. It's a, again, at a certain point, you will have to pay back that tax, but the deferred allows you to be able to leverage that money right now. That dollar today is going to be much more valuable than that dollar later when it comes to investments. And of course, you know, which we may get to, but the ultimate technique in 1031 exchanges is swapping until you drop. You continue to do 1031 exchanges during the course of your lifetime and ultimately die owning a piece of appreciated real property. Well, under current tax law, what happens is the capital gain tax disappears. Your estate will get a step up in the cost basis and the capital gain will disappear. Of course, that's a little consequence to you, but you'll, in your last dying breaths, you'll think, well, at least my kids are getting away from paying capital gains taxes. It's a good way to, to you know, create generational wealth by doing that. So you may be escape both the depreciation recapture and the uh, the capital gains tax just by dying. Yeah, and I, I definitely want to dive into that a little bit more uh, a little later on in the conversation. But one of the things that I think some of the newer investors that are listening to the show today that hear you talk about having to pay back the depreciation, the depreciation recapture, and this isn't necessarily related to 1031 exchange, but more just real estate taxes in general, is it possible to not take that depreciation? So the, the strange and the difficult thing is if you do not take the depreciation, you will still be taxed. So you yeah. might as well take advantage of that because regardless, even if you take it or not, there will be that phantom depreciation which you tax that. So please, if your counsel is not taking depreciation for you, then please have uh, him call us. Yeah, it's imputed. You know, so if you don't take it, they impute it. They treat it as if you took the depreciation, they still tax you on it. Yeah, so you're definitely better off taking it. Even without that, I think you're better off taking it. As Alex said, you'd rather not pay taxes now than pay them later. Keep the money working. That's sure. what this is all about, right? It's basically anytime you can defer taxes, whether through depreciation or through deferral through a 1031 exchange, essentially you're using the government's money to make bigger and more profitable investments. I think this is, this is an important piece to really talk to new investors about putting your money at work immediately. This notion of this dollar today is going to be much more valuable than in you know, five to 10 years is really, really crucial to speak to newer investors. I think we, we kind of missed that part a little bit. It seems a little strange to us. Why would you know, a dollar today be more, you know, more valuable than it would be in 10 years from now, right? But in simple terms, I would say, I was look, let's look a little back to the future. I remember watching that video or that, that movie and you just look at the prices of goods. Like, do you remember when you could actually afford something with a dollar? All right. There is a, a reality of inflation, right? So money will lose value over time, regardless, right? So there's a certain value that you're losing over time. But also, if you invest money today, you could also leverage it more effectively against debt. And that's what a lot of people that 1031 exchanges are doing is actually leveraging the money they have today in order to take on more debt, purchase a larger property that's going to have a larger 
a return in terms of rental income as well. Just make sure that the investors need to recognize that your dollar today is probably the most powerful that dollar will be. And when you start doing that, it allows it to start compounding even earlier and faster and a higher degree, right? Which Albert Einstein said is compounding is the eighth wonder of the world. So the earlier you can take advantage of that, the better. So why is a qualified intermediary so important when completing a 1031 exchange? And what exactly is a qualified intermediary? So, you know, traditionally a 1031 exchange, which has been in the tax code since the 1920s, was designed for two parties to trade properties. That is automatically a 1031 exchange for tax purposes. What, what happens very rarely, though, have their interests aligned so that they're able to trade deeds. You need a three-party structure where you can sell to one party and buy from another. And the way that's done is you use, in the Treasury regulations, they created something called a qualified intermediary. So for tax purposes, the taxpayer gives the qualified intermediary their property, they sell it, and then take the proceeds from that sale and they buy a property from another third party and give that property to the exchanger so that they've then swapped with us. Okay, so the tax code has created the qualified intermediary concept. Okay, we're the middleman. We basically keep the cash from the sale out of their hands so that they're receiving one property for another, which is a tax deferred transaction. That's why you actually will need us in most transactions. And it's important to you know do your homework to qualified intermediary because we're not a regulated industry in most states. No special training that's involved. We're not qualified in the sense that we have you know, education training or you know, any kind of uh, requirements. I happen to be a certified exchange specialist, which is a designation that's given out by our trade association, the Federation of Exchange Accommodators. That just shows that I have some proficiency in 1031 exchanges. I passed a qualifying test. But by and large, you do not have to have that to be a qualified intermediary. So it makes sense to do your homework. And a good qualified intermediary will lead you through the process and help you defer those taxes and get you safely from one property to the other without Uncle Sam reaching into your back pocket. So how does somebody go about finding a qualified intermediary to make sure that they're really of the highest quality and are going to help them successfully navigate that transaction? The easiest way to find them is to listen to this podcast and reach out to Michael or myself and have that conversation with us. We are a great option for individuals. And I'll, I'll, I'll share about some of the things that we've put in place. And that also would be a really good ways of how to, I was saying, a, a bar that you can measure are the QIs by to understand if they're a good option for you. So one of the most important things to understand is security is really, really crucial. The QI is holding funds of one of the most important, largest investments you ever get to make. The important thing is those funds have to be secure. So uh, make sure that in uh, Mass 1031, each investor, each each uh, 1031 exchange has its own dedicated fund that has its own escrow, which we cannot remove money from, right? So unless it's a double signature, both from the owner of the property or the sale and ourselves. So make sure the funds are secure is really crucial. Also, you want to make sure that there's protected by bond, by insurance and the bond. So the, the funds are protected. What's really crucial as well, as well is that you want to make sure the staff that's working at the, as a QI has vast experience with their CPAs and lawyers that are on staff to be able to support you. Because as we're going to get deeper into it, there's a lot of counsel that you want to have from your QI. There's situations that 1031 exchanges, there's various 1031 exchanges. So you want to make sure that you have experienced law professionals who are guiding you through the process. So you have the clear vision of how to execute the 1031 effectively, given your specific situation. Mike, do you want to add a few more factors? 
Yeah. So you you also, as, as Alex said, you want to make sure you know how the funds are being held. And you also want to know that you're dealing with a company with some financial resources. You know, So we are part of a much larger company. Madison Exchange is a pretty substantial company in and of itself, but we're part of Madison Commercial Real Estate Services. So you want to know who you're dealing with at the end of the day. So it is important because there's only a handful of states that regulate qualified intermediaries. And most of those regulations really pertain to how the funds are held. Which, uh, which is, is certainly important, but it does not require anybody to pass any kind of significant testing or education requirements. So I've mentioned this throughout the show that I know a little bit about 1031 exchanges, but not a whole lot. But one of the things I do know is that there's a tight timeline when you're completing a 1031 exchange. So talk to us a bit about that. The timeline it begins with an identification period, which is really crucial. What's really important, just to take a step back, Make sure that you have a, the qualified intermediary has to be set up before the closing. So you have to identify the qualified intermediary because they're going to be the ones who are actually holding the funds. Right? As soon as the seller uh, receives funds, those, those funds become taxable. Make sure that you have the QI that's set aside that receives the funds. Now, the first timeline that's really crucial is 45 days. So you have 45 days to identify properties that can be replacement properties for your 1031 exchange. So those three properties are, can be of any value. One of the challenges of the 1031 exchange is the type of deadlines that are associated with it. So the first deadline is this 45-day deadline. So these are 45 days when you have opportunity to identify three properties of any exchange value. Now, you want to make sure that all the proceeds are put into exchange properties because anything that's not placed inside an exchange property is going to be considered boot and will be taxed. And that's why for a 1031 exchange, Individuals, are, if they're selling a building for a million dollars, they're going to want to exchange it for another building of at least a value of a million dollars so they can avoid those capital gains. They can delay the capital gains tax. So what's crucial is 45 days have three really important rules. Three properties of any value. If you do want to pick more than three properties, well, at that point, you want to make sure that the combined value of those three of more than three properties is going to be at 200%. So essentially, if, a, if you sold a property at a million dollars you have, and you want to identify four, five, six properties, whatever number, you're going to make sure they meet the 200% rule, which is going to be $2 million in combined value. Now, if you're looking to do more than that, well, that means you have to purchase 95% of all the properties identified. That's quite rare right? so because it really uh, forces you the person 95% of the property. So those are the three rules when it comes to the 45-day identification period. Mike, do you want to talk about the next stage? Yeah, I just wanted to just reiterate that. You know, First of all, the deadlines run from the date of closing or whenever you transfer the property to the buyer. And the 200% rule, I just also just want to clarify that it's up to 200%. You do not have to, just to be clear, you don't have to identify 200%, but you can identify no more than 200% of the value, that double, the 200% rule. Then you have 180 days from the closing of the sale to complete the closing or the acquisition of the replacement properties. And you can buy multiple properties, but they would all have to be closed and purchased within the 180 days. Now, as Alex said before, those are calendar days. So there's no tolling of the period for weekends or holidays. If your 45th day is Thanksgiving, you have to get your identification in by midnight of Thanksgiving, despite the fact that you know I typically look at my clients' identifications and I do check them, but I'm probably half asleep in a tryptophan coma on Thanksgiving and probably not best to go uh, reviewing people's documents. But I'm joking, but it just reiterates the point that these are hard, fast deadlines and it doesn't matter what else you have going on. So what exactly does it mean to identify a property? What is that process? 
who do you have to tell? Is there paperwork? What does that look like? Statute and regulations give you a couple options, but typically you would identify with us as the qualified intermediary. So what we do is you close on Monday. On Tuesday, you get a letter from us saying, dear taxpayer, we have your money and here's a form to fill out. And they have to then just complete that form. They should include as much detail as is reasonably practicable. That's from the statute at the time of the identification. So that means a street address with including city or state. It means if you don't have a street address, if it's vacant land, you would want to have some sort of meets and bounds description or a tax map or parcel number. If you're buying percentage interest, if you're buying a tenant in common interest or something called Delaware Statutory Trust, you would want to indicate what percentage you were buying as well. So what happens if you're in this period, you identify those three properties, then you're not able to purchase any of those properties. Are you able to identify additional properties after that? Yes. So unfortunately, that 45-day period is really strict. So if you are not able to either identify the properties or the, you're not able to purchase those properties, the, the exchange disallowed and then the, the investor gets the funds back and it would be liable in tax. Is it common for investors to not be able to meet that deadline? I know you deal with a lot of 1031 exchanges. So how common is it for somebody to meet that deadline versus somebody not? And I'm especially curious because of where we are right now in the market cycle. I think a lot of markets in the US are very competitive right now. So it might be hard to find a good deal that's actually worth putting your money into. I think Michael mentioned earlier in the show, you don't want to just dump your money into a deal to take advantage of a 1031 exchange because you'll lose more on that bad property than you'll save in taxes on the 1031 exchange. So it can be difficult to find a property that's worth buying within such a short period of time. So I'm curious to hear how many people are actually successful at that versus how many people actually have a hard time. So the majority of our clients are successful. It's hard to tell you percentages. I would say maybe 20% of our clients or have maybe they do and the deal fails and you know they are not able to close in 180 days. But the large majority of our clients do complete the process and buy replacement property. There are some options. So that's why you have three properties that you can identify. It gives you options in case one deal falls through, but it's not fail safe. And I would the most important thing maybe to get out of this talk today is that if you're planning to do a 1031 exchange, you want to start shopping either before or at the same time you were trying to sell your property. Because like you said, we're in a kind of competitive market in most of the good areas of the country. It may be hard to find a property that makes sense. So you want to start shopping and doing your homework right away. Now, there are, there are two unique scenarios that we will also mention that you can look at strategies to make sure that you work in that timeline. There's DST, which is Delaware Statute of Trust, which is essentially what I call, what I like to example is that when I was applying to college a very long time ago, and then you basically have certain safety schools, right? So these are options that are great schools, but you know pretty certainly you'll get in there and there's some home runs that you're looking at potentially get in, potentially not. So Delaware Statute of Trust, Mike, can you speak a little bit about it and why it's a safer option that you know you should come into? Delaware Statutory Trust, basically you're buying fractional ownership in a property with a bunch of other people. Typically, these are run by funds. So you may have a REIT, may have a subsidiary that sells Delaware Statutory Trust. And so what they do is they buy a property in a land trust, typically formed under Delaware law. And then they sell off beneficial interest in the trust to 1031 exchange investors. And in, under a revenue ruling that came out in 2004, 2486, says that that's like kind of the real property that they sold. Even though you're buying a trust interest, it's really a property. 
It's very similar to a tenant in common interest, which is maybe more, you know, something people are more familiar with, but this is the structure they use on an institutional level. And the, the benefits of a Delaware statutory trust is that you have certainty of closure. So, you know, they're not going to go away. They, if you put a reservation in on day one after your closing, they will close with you provided you meet certain pressures. You have to be an accredited investor and there's some other, you know, loopholes to jump through. But once you identify it, it will close. You don't have to worry about it disappearing. These are, as Alex said, they're safety investments. Some people will buy them because they're, they're sick of the three T's, right? The tents, the trash, and the toilets. And they'll buy this passive investment that somebody else manages. But also, it's a good backup for a 1031 exchange, or it's a good gap filler. You know, so if you sold for a million dollars and you found the property that you love, but it's only seven hundred thousand dollars, but you have to fill that gap of three hundred thousand dollars, and that you might buy a second property and do that in the Delaware stack. That's an option. You have people doing that quite often. The other option is actually called the reverse exchange, which is you may have a property that you really identify, that you really love, and you want to make sure it doesn't get bought up. There's such a hot market. So what you can actually do is you can uh, you can set up what's called an EAT. And what, what that would allow is essentially you'd lend money to the QI who would purchase that property on your behalf. And then once you sell, and then you would sell your property you own within a 180-day period and purchase using the funds from the sale, purchase the property from the QI. Mike, you want to clarify a little bit? So a reverse exchange is useful in that it allows you to buy before you sell. So you may know that it's such a hot market that you're not going to have any problem selling your property, but you might have trouble finding a property. So what you do is you go out and you find the property first, and then you list your property. But that, as a result, you might have to close on your purchase before your sale. And so what happens is you basically are parking title to the property you're purchasing. We become the buyer. You loan us the money. You and your bank loan us the money. We buy it. We take title to it. We hold title until you sell your property. And when you sell your property, you're essentially buying the property from us, sales proceeds. And then we take the sales proceeds we receive and we repay the funds you advanced to buy the property. So that's called a reverse exchange. And that's also a useful tool that many of our more sophisticated clients use pretty regularly. So you talk about the Delaware Trust. Can you put your 1031 exchange money into a syndication, a larger apartment syndication? Does that work as well? Yeah, you, you can. It's tricky. So because syndicated deals are typically structured as a partnership, right? So you have a limited liability company. The syndicator will be the general partner in the partnership and the investors will be limited partners. And the problem you have is that a 1031 investor cannot buy into a partnership with other people. They have to have the same taxpayer on each side of the exchange. So the taxpayer sells has to be the same taxpayer that buys the other property. If you're buying in the name of an LLC with other people, you're really just buying a partnership. And so what you need to do as a syndicator or to buy into a syndicated deal, you need to buy in with the syndicate as a tenant in common. So you'll have the syndicated entity, let's say own 75% of the property. If they need the cash from a 1031 investor, the 1031 investor will buy in as a co-owner of the actual property. And so they'll take the remaining 25% and buy as a tenant in common. The difficulty is that many of the things that you could do within the syndicated entity, like give the syndicator who has not invested much capital, if any, some profit participation, usually the investors get a preferred return and they here's a portion of the remainder, and you're giving them equity that they haven't contributed capital for. That doesn't work in a 1031 exchange or in a tick situation. So you can do all those things in your syndicated entity, but your 1031 investor is going to have to receive income proportionate to his ownership interest. So if he owns 25%, he's entitled to 25% of the profits. 
And so maybe you, you keep that arrangement for a period of time, a year or two, and then at some point you could kind of roll it all up into the syndicated end. And that's typically what we see being done. It's not maybe the most popular technique for a syndicator, but if they really need that capital from a 1031 investor, it's a useful way to do it. Yeah, if the syndicator needs the money from a 1031 exchange investor, it sounds like that puts the 1031 investor in a good negotiating standpoint, right? They could get a dollar for 1% and they can get their return equal to their percentage without being diluted. Right, at least initially. Then when he contributes to the partnership, maybe there's a different arrangement. So if it's a multi-year project, it's a technique that could work. We've talked about how the timeline can lead to a 1031 exchange not being successful. What other things lead to 1031 exchanges failing other than just not meeting those deadlines? Title defects, identify a replacement property and you go to contract and you're all good to go. And then something shows up in the title report and uh, the seller cannot cure the title defect. Something like uh, a judgment, an outstanding lien or you know something else along those lines. Or maybe it's a boundary line discrepancy. You know, so title defects can kind of throw away uh, a wrench in, in the process. Just to add, just keep in mind again that that 180 days cannot be extended for that reason. So you might be ready, there might be intent, everything might be at the last stage, but because of title defect, it's not going to push that past the 180 days. So the, the exchange could potentially fail because of the other party doesn't uh, is not in a place where they could actually sell the property. Right. Then there could be other due diligence items that come up. Uh, also, the you know typical real estate transaction issues. I mean, title is certainly one of them, but failure to get a mortgage that could be another one. Those are you know typically your real estate risk is still remaining. You know the real estate risk that you have in a normal transaction will also carry forward into a ten thirty one exchange. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Is those title issues or just some of those potential issues that could come up? Those sound like they're just general real estate transaction issues that could happen, not necessarily downside to a ten thirty one exchange. The downside is that you have less time to deal with them, right? So, you know, if you really love the property, you may be willing to extend your your contract period for indefinitely until they're able to clear those issues. Now, the buyer really, or the seller rather really only has a maximum of 180 days to clear those issues up. Yeah, that's a really good point. I remember when I first bought my first ever property, they were putting a special assessment on the condo association and it was taking forever for the homeowners association to figure out all the details, get all the paperwork for the bank to be able to lend on the property. I really liked the house. I wasn't in a situation where I had to move. So I was able to just kind of wait it out and the seller was fine with it because they weren't going to be able to find anybody they could buy it before that anyway. So I was able to just kind of continue it on for indefinitely, like you said. But if I was in a 1031 exchange, I would not have been able to do that because of those timelines. Yeah, that's the big issue. Other than that, there's not too much else that would really kind of throw your exchange off course. We started briefly talking about it earlier, and I don't want to necessarily get too, too deep into a a morbid subject, but I've heard people recommend that long-term investors should just continually do 1031 exchanges until they pass away as a strategy for building multi-generational wealth since they wouldn't be paying taxes on that money their whole lives if it's done correctly. Because of this, I'm guessing there's no limit on the number of 1031 exchanges that can be completed by a single person. Is that correct? And if so, what impact does this have on the people that ultimately inherit the properties? So you know, this is what's called a swap till you drop. And it's a very popular method for creating multi-generational wealth. The reason why it's called multi-generational is because real, the true benefits are going to be enjoyed by the next generation. And you will experience that tremendous joy and pleasure of knowing you've taken care of your children. Essentially, the swap to drop 
is going to be beneficial because at the current tax law, an individual, the investor, at the point of his death, all of his properties and all his assets go on to a step-up basis. Right? So at the time, value the time of his death, not the previous sale, the value the time of his death. So essentially, that step-up basis is really crucial because it's going to eliminate the taxes that were going to be owned on capital gains. It's going to eliminate the depreciation recapture. Right? All those challenges, all those taxes will be not just deferred, but eliminated. Now, you do need to be aware of the state tax, of course, that the, that the inheritors will have to deal with. But at the same time, it's, a, it's an amazing tool for building multi-generational wealth because you're giving your children an asset that's going to be tax-free. Yeah. The, and on estate taxes, right now, the thresholds for paying estate taxes, really only the top echelon of wealth is tax on estates, you know, have, has an estate tax. We don't worry too much currently about estate taxes, but it is something to keep an eye on. Future administrations and Congresses may lower those limits and estate taxes could again become a problem. You'd rather pay capital gain taxes, quite frankly, than estate taxes because the rates are much higher. But swapping to your drop is something investors do. Uh, just to answer your question, there is no limit that to how many exchanges an investor can do during their lifetime. That being said, you should hold your properties for investment rather than resale. So 1031 exchanges are not designed for people who are flipping short term. And typically by short term, I mean probably anything under a year would be you know subject to scrutiny. So it's really for your longer term holds for you know two to five and on years, more so than somebody's going to just be in and out of us you know properties constantly. Alex, you mentioned that step of value, and I think that that's like the key point to this swap that you drop opportunity or dynamic. And so I want to make sure that we really drill this home so that because I think a lot of this is is new to the audience listening. So I want to make sure that we fully cover that, and make sure we fully understand what that means, and so. If I understand you correctly, the step up means that if the property was purchased for say a hundred thousand and they were going to sell it in the future for say four hundred thousand, they might have a three hundred thousand dollar gain. Whereas now that step up value when that person passes away, rather than their original purchase price being a hundred thousand, their quote unquote purchase price now becomes four hundred thousand, and that value is stepped up to the value of the property at the time they passed. Is that correct? I think you said exactly correct. Essentially, and we're talking about. 1031 exchange clients is typically, if you again, if you're looking to defer, you know, capital gains of more than hundred thousand dollars at least. We're not talking. And person has been doing 1031s again, again, again. So we're we're talking about person could have potentially had a home with a purchase in San Francisco in the 1970s for hundred fifty thousand dollars, sold it two million dollars, leveraged it to move to Kansas City for four million dollars. You're talking about going from hundred thousand dollars to four million dollars. So we're talking about very significant. So $100,000 to $4 million, the capital gains tax, you'd be paying out $3.9 million. And if an individual passed away, the value of that home, when, in terms of taxation, would actually be $4 million. So no capital gains tax. Yeah. And then just the accounting term for your initial investment in the property is called your cost basis. Uh, and that's where it gets stepped up. So your cost basis gets stepped up to the fair market value at the date of your death. So that any capital gain to that point disappears. Now, if your kids wait 10 years and then they sell the property, there'll be additional gain that might be taxed. But the capital gain that accumulated during your lifetime, that disappears on the... That's a good point that you just brought up. So that's assuming that it's sold right at the death. Because if it's held after their cost basis is still stepped up to what it was when the person passed, but now the gain is probably smaller. 
he could be going for that four million dollars to maybe four million one hundred thousand. So, but it's just a light and day. But that difference is so huge. People should really be aware of this. And 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 for the individual who is kind of reaching the point where they're thinking multi generationally, they can still, of course, use those properties for rental income. So they're living off the rental income, and at the same time, but knowing that they are going to leave an asset to their children. And that's a really, really beautiful idea. Michael, you briefly mentioned before we started that little conversation there about not wanting to necessarily use a 1031 exchange to flip. And I wanted to ask about that. You know, A lot of our assumptions so far throughout this conversation has been that we're long-term buy and hold rental property owners or investors, right? Can this be used in any other strategies? You said it's probably not great for flipping, but could it be used for flipping? They do make a distinction under Section 1031. It specifically says that you cannot use the 1031 exchange for property as primarily held for resale. Okay, so that's your flipper. When you buy it, you have to intend to hold it for investment rather than resale. Your flipper is always intending to resell the property. Now, everybody is going to sell and intends to sell their property at some point. But the guy who's going to buy it on Monday, fix it up you know, over the course of seven months, and then sell it, that guy should not do 1031 exchanges. Mike, can you talk about the Godfather offer? Yeah, the Godfather defense. So we talk about holding period, and essentially, the, you know, that's one of the factors that would determine whether properties held for resale rather than investment. And so, as I said, there's no set holding period in 1031 exchanges, but suggested that you want to hold the property maybe two years conservatively before you do a 1031 exchange property on it, and during that time, rent the property. And maybe as little as a year could qualify, especially if you have a solid year of rental and you're straddling two tax years, so it raises less scrutiny on your tax return. But that's not to say that you could not do a 1031 exchange on a property held less than a year. I call this the godfather defense, right? So you buy a property in January and you rent it solidly to a tenant for seven months. And now it's, uh, let's say, let's say it's August and you get the offer you can't refuse, right? Maybe somebody offered you double what you paid for the property. Or maybe somebody has some other leverage that a, uh, as we said, the godfather might have that makes it you know, physically prudent for you to, uh, to sell the property to them. So you have some other reason for selling it that wasn't your initial intention. Your initial intention was to hold it for a long term and things changed. Well, you can make that argument and I think you would be able to do a 1031 exchange. Or if you got audited, I think you would be able to substantiate to the IRS that you had a good intention, but it changed due to market conditions or et cetera, et cetera. And there are some cases to that effect, maybe not directly on point, but generally leading to the credence that the tax courts will find that if you can demonstrate your intention at the outset was pure, let's say, to hold it for investment, that you may be able to sell it in under a year. And so all of this really comes into play if you get audited from the IRS, correct? Correct. And so you just need to be able to somehow demonstrate that what you just said is what was actually occurring and you weren't trying to game the system. Right. So, you know, if if their evidence is introduced, if the IRS finds out that you bought the property today and you immediately listed it with a broker and and you sold it a year and a day from now, well, that's not going to help you if you didn't rent it, if you were constantly trying to sell it. The fact that you were bad at selling it is not a defense to uh, the fact that you were always intending to sell it. So there's a number of factors. It's just that the holding period is the number one factor that's evident on the tax return. And so you always want to do documentation. So I don't want to necessarily get into the weeds too much on 1031 exchanges and flipping. And I think this might be getting into them a little bit, but 
I know that one of the big complaints about flipping is that it's very tax intensive, right? You know, you lose a lot of your profits to taxes. I'm curious if if there's potentially an opportunity for someone who's doing a flip and they work into their numbers that they're going to rent this out, they're going to fix it up, they're going to rent it out for 6 months to 9 months, maybe even a year. Maybe they take a little bit of a loss or maybe they're just breaking even, but in the grand scheme of things because they made so much on the flip itself that that loss can be covered by the gain of the flip and then in that case they could then use a 1031 exchange. Is that kind of walking a gray line in terms of the tax code or is that something that could be done? Well, I think it is it's the line that it's walking is, you know, if this is your business model and you're going to continue to do this, eventually you're going to get audited and that's when you run into problems. You know, you're talking about playing audit roulette, you know, which we have clients will do. They'll say, "Oh, just take my shot. Uh, very few people get audited and so I'm going to take my chances." And that goes that's rampant throughout the tax system. It's not just 1031 exchanges. But I think you have a better defense or you're less likely to be audited if you have a longer holding period and hold it for at least a year. At a year also, it's more beneficial to sell the property because at a year and a day, the long-term capital gains rates kicks in. If you're a flipper and you're flipping in under a year, you're paying income tax rates. Okay, And so instead of paying between 15 and 20%, you're instead paying upwards of 28 to the 30s percent. So I wouldn't necessarily play the game that way. Sure, people are doing that and are doing 1031 exchanges and are playing audit roulette. It's not something I would recommend, but I'm sure people are doing it and getting away. Just to add, we just are seeing a lot of interest in value added deals. So this, again, this has a lot of a similar connotation of we're going to take a property and we're going to make massive improvements on property. We just spoke to an investor today who is making a series of purchases in the Long Island area where he's purchasing properties at $600 current rent. The units are being rented at $600. And he's, it's a value-added project. He has staff already that's going to be building it out, making improvements in it. And is going to be renting it out for $2,200. So that $600 property per unit property has become a $2,200 rent unit. And then potentially after three, four years, he's going to sell that property, right? So if you think about it that way, they're still having that. They're providing tremendous value to the property of making improvements. They're renting at a much higher rate. And then selling the property using a 1031 exchange and doing the same thing again on a different property. Just on the higher scales. Instead of using taking an eight apartment multifamily, they're going to go into 22 or 50 or 100. But they're doing exactly the same thing again and again. Now, of course, that can become difficult in rent control areas. Talk about that. But I think flippers, while there is obviously a lot of value in flipping, people can also look at this model of value added and development and, and learn from that as well, which is a more longer term strategy that can definitely incorporate down 31 exchanges. Now, does completing a 1031 exchange increase your risk of audit? Audit rates are very, very low on the federal level. Audit rates are very, very low. And the and I haven't heard the statistics in a while, but let's say I'm probably off on the numbers. Let's say that 1.5% of returns were subject to random audit. Okay, we're talking about random audit. This is not where you put any red flags out. 1031 exchanges are probably in the mid 2% chance of being audited. So it's still very low. There's an increased risk, but it's it's nominally increased. It's not, you know, you're not going from a 1.5% in, you know, chance to a 30%. It's it's by an order of one or two percent. Now, when you say two percent, is that two percent on the same basis of the one and a half percent, or is that two percent of all 1031 exchanges? Not so much of 1031 exchanges, your overall chance of audit is increased to two percent. 
you know, so it's not that 2%, and maybe it is still 2% of all exchanges are audited. I don't know that for a fact, but it's your overall chance of audit is by, by like a factor of one, maybe one and a half. So I wouldn't say that the risk of being audited and the potential legal fees that you would have associated with that are should even really be a major component of consideration for doing a 1031 exchange or not. If you're doing a standard garden variety 1031 exchange, you have very little chance of being audited. But if you're doing some of the advanced structures, which you probably don't have a chance to get into, if you're reformulating your partnership right before closing, if you're flipping a property in under a year, you know that's going to be on the face of your tax return, and that will subject you to more scrutiny. If you're also in a state that has state income tax, that's really going to be a potential higher chance of audit. So if you're in the California or New York, specifically California, you want to make sure that you're aware because they have their own audits that they can conduct. So you're not just looking at the federal level, but you just look at the state level. Yeah, the states have been much more active than the IRS in auditing 1031 exchanges. Specifically, as Alex said, California, and with respect to certain issues, New York has been fairly active as well. Does your qualified intermediary or the company that you're using to do your 1031 exchange, do they provide any service or guarantee in the event that you do get audited? No, because our role in the transaction is not to be the tax advisor or the legal advisor. We are just a qualified intermediary. So we know a lot of things about 1031 exchanges, but ultimately we need to work with your tax advisor. So we always recommend that you get your accountant involved early. Your legal team has to be because they're closing the transaction, but we work with them. And at the end of the day, we help you make informed decisions about what risks you want to take and what you don't want to take, but we're not ultimately the party that stands behind that. We don't sign a tax return. That's your accountant's job. And we just try to provide as much information as possible. Just to add that, if we were the accountant, we could actually not be the QI. Right. So if as, as an agent of the taxpayer, so exactly a lawyer or the CPA could not be the QI. So we're doing very different jobs from them. Uh, at the same time, we work hand in hand with them 100%. So the yeah. QI is really just helping to make sure that you are set up appropriately so that if you do get audited, they did their job right, you did everything right, and then your tax or accounting team can help you really navigate that audit. Exactly. And so we're, we're the actual facilitator of the exchange, but all that outside structuring with some of the things like we talked about syndication, some of those issues, you know, that's all going to be structured by your tax and legal team. I get asked a lot about partnerships, whether people from people listening to the show, whether they should invest in real estate with a partner. I personally have a business partner that I invest in a lot of my real estate deals with. It's just something that I enjoy. So what happens when partners purchase a property together and one of the two partners does not want to do a 1031 exchange? Assuming that they own 50-50, just to kind of keep it simple, can one partner force the other partner to do a 1031 exchange legally? They could not force them legally. Usually, it depends on what your partnership agreement provides. So, somebody usually many partnerships you want to charge, you want to set up so that you have a tiebreaker. But essentially, this is a common issue: is the partnership issue where the parties want to separate. And as I mentioned, this is kind of similar to the syndicated issue. You know, you have to have the same taxpayer on both sides of the exchange. So, if a partnership owns the relinquished property, the partnership has to buy the replacement property. So you probably, this is some of the restructuring I talked about, which is a little bit controversial or a little bit you know, subject to audit risk. You would have to essentially get out of the partnerships if you wanted to separate. And you would do that before, hopefully before you actually went to contract for the property that you were selling. You would have the partnership deed the property out to the two partners as tenants in common. And then as tenants in common, when they sell the property, they can go their separate ways. 
You probably don't want to wait and do this on the eve of closing. You'd rather do it as much in advance as you possibly could. Or alternatively, in the social case, one partner could buy out of the other partner as well. In that case, when you mentioned the partnership, does it have to be a legal entity? So do you have to have a legal, say, LLC or partnership that owns that property? Or what if it's owned in two people's names individually? Is that still considered a partnership? Not necessarily. So you can own property in two people's names, and that would be considered tenant in common ownership, typically. Okay, so two party, and in that case, you don't have to do restructuring. You know, that's provided you're not filing a like partnership tax return. Typically, you would just show the property on each of your individual returns, right? 50 50. That's fine. That's what we're actually trying to get to when we do what I call the drop and swap is that state. So if you're, part, if you're set up as a tenant in common, then you're good to go. You can go your separate ways, no problem. So it sounds like if you don't have it in a legal entity, you're in a better situation than if you have it owned in an LLC. Yeah, what I would recommend, you probably still want to have a legal entity for you know protection purposes. So you're protected against lawsuits, et cetera, et cetera. But in that case, if you wanted to have a partner or a co-venturer, we'll call them because partner denotes you know a legal relationship, you would each set up your own limited liability company. So you could have two limited liability companies own the same property, 50-50, and then you can still go your own separate ways. For someone just embarking on their real estate journey, like I mentioned, a lot of the audience is early on in their career or just getting started. Obviously, it's important to plan for these types of things down the line, which is why I think this conversation is going to be so valuable. But what is the most important thing for them to know in relation to a 1031 exchange when they're just getting started? I would just say planning. The deadlines are very, very short. And so if you're... You, you want to have your exit strategies planned. So if you think that you're going to buy other property in your lifetime, you want to think about things like, well, how do I want to set up my ownership? Do I want to set up a partnership or do I want to set it up as tenants in common? And tenants in common gives you more flexibility. If you're going to buy property, you want to make sure that you're shopping as soon as you're considering selling your property. So you have flexibility. It's all planning. And the more planning you do, the better off you'll be and the smoother the process will go. Guys, I've really enjoyed our conversation. It's been a lot of fun having you both here. I think we've covered a lot of great information that I think the audience is going to get a lot of value from. I know I did myself and I look forward to having you both here back on the show again. I know there's a lot more that we could talk about. So I look forward to that episode in the future. For those interested in learning more about you and connecting with you guys, where is the best place for them to go? A great way is to just contact me directly at Alex and Madison 1031. Also check out our website, madison1031.com. I, I typically have the initial conversation with the potential investor and can see what the next steps would be. Again, we, we love to, the more complicated the situation, the more we love talking about and exploring it together. You know, Michael brings, he has personally deferred over a billion dollars worth of capital gains for his clients. So really structuring challenging cases is really our specialty. So every case is unique. Every investor is unique. So reaching out and having that conversation, the initial call and seeing what the needs are, who the next person that they should talk to, that would be the, the next best step. Yeah, that's perfect. And you can find us both on LinkedIn as well. We do also have a blog on our website, the Madison1031zone. You can find that again on Madison1031.com. Awesome. I'll be sure to put links to everything that we talked about throughout the show, as well as some books related to these topics. And then also the resources and ways you guys can connect with Alex and Michael in the show notes that you guys can go find that information there. Guys, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Our pleasure. Thanks. It's been great. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. 
Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.